Hello, and welcome to the Reorg Research Weekly Podcast, where we bring you the latest top developments in the news of distressed debt and bankruptcies. I'm Catherine Doherty, reporting from Reorg's offices in New York City. This week, Fieldwood Energy files for bankruptcy, GNC works on extending its maturities, Puerto Rico ruling on financing motions, and Remington's restructuring support agreement. And on our deep dive segment, Reorg's Covenants team will discuss transfers to unrestricted subsidiaries, a tactic that has been used by a number of stressed companies to raise liquidity. Companies that we'll highlight include J. Crew, Claire's, Revlon, and Mattel. It's Sunday, February 18th. For this week's recap, I'm joined by fellow reporter Jim Holloway, reporting from Houston, Texas. Hey, Jim. Evening, y'all. So let's start with the big filing of the week, Fieldwood Energy. On Thursday, the Houston-based exploration and production company with over $3 billion in debt filed for Chapter 11 in the bankruptcy court for the Southern District of Texas. Earlier in the day, the company announced a $710 million transaction with Noble Energy for Noble's Gulf of Mexico assets. Fieldwood entered into bankruptcy with a restructuring support agreement. So, Jim, seeing as this is a filing that took place in your neck of the woods, can you tell us a little more about the deal that the company has reached with its creditors before the filing? Thanks, Catherine. I'll, of course, refer you all to our best-in-class coverage for the more intricate details. But in short, the prepack cuts the company's debt by $1.63 billion and slashes annual debt service by up to $128 million and also reduces gross leverage to less than two times from nearly six times. What's most interesting, of course, is the rights offering, over half a billion dollars, and the use of proceeds, which is to acquire deepwater Gulf of Mexico assets from Noble Energy. Now, Fieldwood has heretofore operated on the continental shelf of the Gulf of Mexico, so venturing further out will be a new thing for them. Now, other than some projects FID'd before the downturn, the Gulf has been somewhat becalmed, you might say. Not a lot of new exploratory and development wells. But Brent, Louisiana, Light Sweet have been holding their gains. Chevron and Shell have each announced some large discoveries. And there's been color um, from people, including Ton Hordenbeck of Cornbeck Offshore, that the conditions for recovery are starting to gel. So perhaps this is an additional indicator of that. And were there any surprises or big arguments that you hear at the debtor's first day hearing? The first day hearing was really remarkable for the speed and ease through which the various motions were granted by Judge Jones, who, as he's wont to do, reminded various attorneys and members of management of their duty to the company's 700 employees. And, I'd say, just a general air of good feeling between the various parties, from the crossover group represented by Damian Schäuble of Davis Polk to the debtors professionals led by Alfredo Perez, who heads up Wiles' offices here in Houston. A lot of excitement about the transaction and the noble acquisition. What should folks be looking out for in the coming weeks? Nothing really jumps out based on the first day hearing. As Mr. Perez noted, Fieldwood is a solid company that got trapped in the commodity downturn. It has a great reputation in Houston. It's got particular expertise in plug and abandonment and decommissioning of old wells. And that the creditors committed to a plan that helps the company grow as well as deliver speaks volumes to this. That's great, Jim. And should I note that Reorg will be hosting a webinar to go over Fieldwood's Chapter 11 filing on Tuesday at 3 p.m., so be sure to sign up for that one. It's open and free to all. 
It was an active week for GNC, the health and nutrition retailer. On Tuesday, the company announced a $300 million investment from Harbin Pharmaceutical Group, a company owned in part by Chinese state-owned investment company Citic. Through this investment, Harbin would become GNC's single largest shareholder, approximately 40% on an as-converted basis. GNC and Harbin have agreed to form a joint venture for the sale and distribution of GNC-branded products in China. According to the release, GNC will gain, quote, access to a leading pharmaceutical distribution network in China, as well as expertise in operational and manufacturing, which will serve as critical resources as GNC works to expand its reach in China. Well, everybody's seeking a foothold in the burgeoning Chinese market with its billions of potential new customers. What will GNC need for this to go through? Well, Jim, later we learned that the investment is contingent on GNC completing an amend and extend of the company's $1.1 billion term loan, which is set to mature next year. GNC said that it reached an agreement with 44% of its lenders to extend the maturity by two years to 2021 in exchange for a fairly large step up in coupon. The transaction also involves issuing a new $275 million first in last out loan, part of which will be used to pay down extending lenders. The amendment and Harbin investment agreement requires that 90% of the principal is either extended or paid down. And even if GNC is successful, the extended loan will still mature in 2020 if more than $50 million of its existing convertible notes remains outstanding, so a lot to watch closely for. Meanwhile, all things Puerto Rico continued to be front and center. On Thursday, Judge Laura Swain ruled that she would not approve PREPA's motion to borrow up to $1 billion through post-petition financing proposed by the PROMESA Oversight Board and AFAF. Judge Swain found that the parties failed to demonstrate the legality of and the need for the financing as proposed. Instead of denying the motion outright, the court held the motion in abeyance, signaling that it would approve an unsecured super-priority loan from the Commonwealth of not more than $300 million if they could show that unsecured financing with an administrative expense priority was not available. Just one day later, the Oversight Board and AFAF filed a motion seeking approval of a revised $300 million unsecured super-priority loan to PREPA, with the expectation of a request for a larger financing within two to four weeks. Earlier in the week, Puerto Rico posted an updated fiscal plan, which projects a $3.4 billion surplus accumulating over the next six years. That's after factoring in government transformation initiatives and structural reforms, as well as federal support related to health care and disaster relief, but before debt service. The updated fiscal plan's debt sustainability analysis also shows that the Commonwealth's implied debt capacity, using net tax-supported debt metrics of various U.S. states, 
over the next 30 years ranges from a minimum of $3.9 billion to a maximum of $27 billion. At the beginning of the week, Remington Outdoor Company, the 200-year-old American firearm manufacturer, said that it's planning to file for bankruptcy and has reached a restructuring support agreement with its creditors that contemplates around $700 million in debt reduction. Jim, guns have been in the news a lot this week, especially with the fatal shootings at a school in Florida. What kind of shape is Remington in, and who is party to this RSA? Well, Catherine, uh, Remington is, of course, a storied name in the history of American industry, most notably, I suppose. General George Armstrong Custer carried a Remington product at the Battle of the Little Bighorn. The RSA proposes $145 million of new financing in the form of two dip turn loans, consisting $45 million provided to FGI Opco, one of Remington's units from parent ROC, and $100 million provided by consenting creditors. Term loans will get 82.5% of reorganized equity. Third liens will get 175 of equity through the equitization of the $45 million term loan. And as always, I'd refer you all to our coverage for the, all the cross T's and dotted I's. Now, the company did file a current report and certain material agreements on Saturday, indicating a Chapter 11 filing would occur no later than March 7th, along with an announcement it had amended its ABL revolver on Friday, which reduced the amount of commitments under said revolver to $193 million. Good to know, Jim. Our top stories of the week were, one, D.C. Circuit reverses district court in LSTA's appeal challenging CLO risk retention rule. Two, iHeart February 8th proposal swap coalesces around $5.55 billion in new debt to term loan and PGN note holders. And three, Senvio, Brigade Capital Management files a motion to appoint an examiner in Senvio's Chapter 11 cases. And now, I'll pass it over to Jim for a preview of what's to come in the week ahead. Catherine, thank you as always, and as always, thanks to y'all that are listening. Holiday shortened week this week with a whole boatload of earnings. Tuesday, February 20th, is our Fieldwood Energy webinar, as alluded to earlier. Make sure y'all tune in for that. The same time of day is a hearing on the creditor's motion to compel mediation in Pacific Drillings cases. They're arguing that the debtors are delaying the cases purposely to improve recovery to equity and that disputes regarding valuation and timing warrant court-ordered mediation. To my mind, at least, and also as I alluded earlier, Fieldwood's purchase of deepwater assets has some relevance to this issue, as do earnings from Ocean Rig, the first deepwater contractor to emerge from Chapter 11, which are due after the close. First Energy's earnings are due as well. Wednesday, February 21st, we have Ocean Rig's call scheduled for 8 a.m. and First Energy's at 10 a.m. In court activity, summary judgment motions are due in the Commonwealth Cafina dispute in Puerto Rico, and in earnings, an increasingly topical name. Avis is due with its fourth quarter results after the close. Had a bit of a tape bomb related to the company on Thursday with news of a looming proxy fight with SRS, its largest shareholder. And in the courtroom, a disclosure statement hearing in Westinghouse is slated for 1 p.m. in New York City. Thursday, February 22nd, Avis's earnings call is set for 8.30 a.m. directly from Parsippany, New Jersey. And in Houston, a disclosure statement hearing for Cobalt International Energy is set for 10 a.m. and a final dip hearing in the Exco cases at 3 p.m. 
both in Judge Marvin Isger's courtroom, which is number 404, and the Bob Casey U.S. Courthouse, which itself is a stunning example of early 1960s General Services Administration architectural styling. And February 23rd, that's Friday, brings a deadline for the Puerto Rico government to propose revenues for each agency, corporation, and fund covered under the fiscal plan. And that's all from me. Thank you very much. And if the good Lord's will and the creek don't rise, we'll see you all next week. Back to you, Catherine. Thanks, Jim. As always, we'll be on the lookout for those developments in the coming days. Now, earlier this week, the Reorg Covenants team sat down to discuss the use of unrestricted subsidiary transfers, which a number of distressed companies that we follow have used to raise much-needed liquidity. The team will look at situations with companies like J. Crew, Claire's, Revlon, Mattel, and more. Hello, and welcome to Covenants Catch-Up, where Reorg's Covenants team will provide its perspective on covenant-related issues that it thinks investors should be aware of. My name is Stephen Opper, and I am today joined by Peter Washkowitz and Alicia Turak, both members of our REARG Covenants team. Today we're going to talk about uh, transfers to unrestricted subsidiaries. But before we do that, I'd like to note for our listeners that while REARG Covenants analyzes the capital structures of public companies, and while our discussion focuses on public companies today and their debt documents, REARG Research is excited to announce that we now offer our subscribers analysis of private companies and private debt documents as well. We've just launched a new add-on offering called Reorg Covenants Prime that allows subscribers to submit private and public debt documents and receive in-depth tailored reports that include a summary of covenant packages and com commentary on the material differences between submitted debt documents. For more information, contact us at sales at reorg-research.com. So now to begin, Peter, uh, a number of companies have pursued unrestricted subsidiary transfers, um, including recently J. Crew and Claire's. J. Crew's transfer was followed by legation, which made it a pretty timely case for us to cover. Um, can you explain the motivation behind those transactions? Uh, sure. Uh, companies are using transfers to unrestricted subsidiaries to move collateral and other assets out of the credit group in order to circumvent constraints in their debt documents. As you mentioned, companies like J. Crew and Claire's have recently transferred portions of their IP to unrestricted subsidiaries. Those subsidiaries, in turn, incurred new debt by, uh, secured by that transferred IP and used the proceeds to prepay certain outstanding debt that J. Crew and Claire's were not uh, allowed to uh, prepay themselves under their debt documents. And so they're, they're able to, you mentioned that they can circumvent the constraints in their debt documents. And also, I think from a restructuring perspective, not only are they circumventing those debt documents, but they're also moving collateral or assets a little bit farther from the reach of the initial lenders, which later down the line can, can make it uh, you know, worse for the, for the prior um, constituents, uh, I guess depending on where you are in the capital structure or what your position was. But it seems to serve a number of different purposes uh, depending on what perspective you're, you're taking for each case. I guess, is there a recent example of that you have in mind of companies using these type of tactics? Yeah, so I'll answer that. While it hasn't actually done anything yet, there has been market speculation that Revlon might try to transfer assets to its unrestricted subsidiaries, which would, as you were saying, Stephen, move those assets away from the current lender group. This speculation actually led Revlon CFO Chris Peterson to make a public statement where he said, quote, that a material asset transfer is not being considered. 
However, this statement didn't appear to quiet the market's concerns, and various bank desks uh, are still sort of speculating that this might occur. So that Revlon sounds like a, a timely, uh, a timely case to keep watching, and obviously, uh, with the CEO's comments, there's you know some interest uh, expressed from the market, or it seems that there is, um, uh, given that name. But before we get too deep into Revlon, I guess if we could just take a step back and try to understand how these transfers actually work. I think that'd be helpful to kind of go through the mechanics. Sure. So a company typically has credit agreements and indentures and sometimes other more uh, interesting debt documents. And these documents include covenants that generally restrict the company from engaging in a number of different types of transactions, like incurring debt, paying dividends, prepaying other debt, and making investments. And these covenants usually restrict the company and its restricted subsidiaries but they do not restrict unrestricted subsidiaries. So why are there restricted subsidiaries at all, right? Wouldn't a company just prefer to have all of its subsidiaries be unrestricted? So for one, typically only restricted subsidiaries' financials are included in financial covenants. So if you're trying to meet a leverage ratio and you can't include the assets and earnings of most of your company, you know that's obviously not going to work out in your favor. And in addition, to designate subsidiaries as unrestricted, the company usually must meet certain conditions, such as having sufficient investment capacity under an um, unrestricted subsidiary basket, not being in default, and sometimes meeting a financial covenant. And just to be clear on that real quick, I guess from the company's perspective, as you mentioned, they'd rather have all of the, all the subsidiaries unrestricted, right? Because theoretically, or I guess practically, they'd have less restriction um, on, uh, or more flexibility on what they could do with each of the subsidiaries. And then from a lender perspective, it seems that you'd want to restrict all the subsidiaries, or as many as you could. Sure, but I think for the company as well, the, you know, the more restricted subsidiaries it has, the better, you know, the more debt, the cheaper debt, the better terms it's going to be able to get because those subsidiaries are providing credit support. You know, so it's sort of like saying the company could just not get a loan and then it wouldn't be restricted. But if it wants to get the type of loan that it, you know, it's going to be most favorable to the company, it probably is in its interest to include subsidiaries as restricted subsidiaries so that it has that credit support um, that lenders can rely on so the company gets better terms. Peter, I guess, why is the difference between restricted and unrestricted subsidiaries so important? Well, as Alicia said, unrestricted subsidiaries aren't bound by the terms and provisions in the debt documents. So to the extent the company transfers assets to unrestricted subsidiaries, the lender's claim on those assets becomes severely weakened. Um, now, these transfers are, for the most part, typically covered in the investments covenant, which generally have kind of baskets that specify a certain amount that uh, companies are allowed to invest in unrestricted subsidiaries. However, a number of agreements, um, none of them actually particularly recent, but uh, just I think the market is becoming more aware of these types of baskets. Um, there are these additional baskets that allow restricted subsidiaries essentially to make um, unfettered investments in unrestricted subsidiaries in the amount equal to the proceeds that that entity itself has received from investments made in them. And so essentially, so the documents permit certain transactions by these companies, one of those being investments from certain entities into others. Uh, and I guess uh, what's interesting is that you can use this as we're, as we're discussing, uh, the companies can end up using this to their benefit, but why is there a business reason why those exist um, to begin with? 
Yeah, you know, the, the answer isn't, it's, it's, not always, it's, it's not always that clear. I, I mean, sometimes there's the case where a company may have, you know, one specific line of business that it needs to kind of ring fence from the rest of its business, you know, or maybe it kind of wants to allow that company to grow and be able to incur its own debt um, and, you know, have investment capacity of its own, so to kind of keep it away from the rest of its, of, from the rest of its businesses. And other times a company may want to ring fence an entity to form a joint venture with it. And sometimes it just might be to comply with local laws. Um, in any event, you know, where there is a legitimate reason to form an unrestricted subsidiary, lenders will typically provide the company with some flexibility to capitalize it and allow it to conduct its own business. Gotcha. Okay. And then going back to the proceeds baskets that you mentioned, uh, what benefit do they give to the company to be able to make those investments in unrestricted subsidiaries. Yeah, it's not an addition. It's not a new benefit. It's just it, it, it adds to the company's investment capacity to transfer additional assets to these unrestricted subsidiaries. Again, there's no dollar amount typically in these uh, proceeds baskets. It's just the amount of proceeds that that company has received from investments into itself. Um, now, you know, as the, as the company is able to transfer more and more uh, assets to these unrestricted subsidiaries, it just increases the unrestricted subsidiary's ability to incur more debt. And, you know, to the extent the unrestricted subsidiary has additional capacity to incur debt, the more it can prepay the company's debt or, you know, any number of transactions. Okay, so, so essentially you start off with, with one company or one entity that's incurred debt, that, that entity is now investing assets into an unrestricted subsidiary, which can raise its own debt based on those assets, um, and then use that financing potentially to pay down the initial entity's creditors or uh, for any use, if, if it's unrestricted potentially. Um, is that kind of that's what you're describing? Yeah, I, I mean, it's, this may not, it, it's a fairly simple idea, it just may not be conveyed very well from a, from a, you know, I am a lawyer, of course. Um, I mean, let's just say you have company A and it has a credit agreement and they agree, they, the credit agreement says company A is not allowed to repay junior lien or unsecured debt. Fine. But if company A can transfer assets to an unrestricted subsidiary, the unrestricted subsidiary can incur debt, you know, secured by those transferred assets, and then it can prepay company A's junior lien debt since it's not subject to those restrictions. Okay, that's, that's helpful. And, you know, you also mentioned the transfer of those assets, and we mentioned, you know, Claire's, J. Crew, Revlon—they all have a retail component. Is that, uh, is that, is there a reason for that? Are there specific types of assets that lend themselves particularly uh, to these transactions? Well, you know, I mean, there's no hard and fast rule as to what assets can and cannot be transferred, but, you know, in J. Crew and Claire's situation, which are really kind of the only companies that we know that have exploited these proceeds baskets. They transferred interest in their IP. Um, in addition with those transfers, they, they then signed uh, licensing agreements with the unrestricted subsidiary. So not only was the value being transferred from the asset itself, but then J. Crew and Claire's was continually making payments on those licensing agreements. So, I mean, I, I don't know if there's one asset that's better suited than the other, but certainly these proceeds baskets are... The, the industry where they're they're popping up more and more are in the retail sector where the IP is a very valuable asset. Okay, great. And then, I guess Alicia, you know, you, you mentioned Revlon, and uh, and Peter just described how J. Crew and Claire's are relevant and kind of the mechanics behind those. Is are, are the 
I guess, would the mechanics for the for a Revlon transaction uh, be similar, or can you can you walk us through? I guess what you think. Sure. Uh, a lot of people are definitely comparing the type of transaction that Revlon is going to do, or you know, is speculated that it might do uh, to the transaction that J. Crew entered into. And you know, a few more details about J. Crew would be a little bit helpful here. So, you know, last summer they transferred IP out assets outside the reach of creditors, which led to a lawsuit by some of the lenders, as we've sort of been talking about. Now, J. Crew valued these assets at 250 million. But the lenders who brought the lawsuit had it valued at about $1 billion. So there's a big valuation question uh, in the J.Crew lawsuit. But in transferring the IP to the unrestricted subsidiaries, J.Crew enabled those unrestricted subsidiaries to raise debt to repay certain debt that was coming due that J.Crew was prevented from paying itself under its documents. So through this transfer, J.Crew was able to avoid you know, a complete restructuring of its capital structure um, by raising debt sort of at these unrestricted subsidiaries. Now, sort of the mechanics of how they did that, J.Crew relied on three different investment baskets to transfer their IP assets to a restricted subsidiary, a different restricted subsidiary than had owned them previously. And then that restricted subsidiary transferred the assets to an unrestricted subsidiary by relying on a proceeds basket like those that we've been discussing. So in J.Crew, it was a two-step process. But unlike J.Crew, Revlon wouldn't need to rely on multiple baskets or a two-step process or really rely on a proceeds basket at all. In Revlon, it could contribute significant assets to an unrestricted subsidiary directly under a general investment basket. So in that way, it is fairly different in that, you know, it's much more clear and obvious under the documents that Revlon is permitted to make this sort of transfer. Gotcha. Okay. And so it's, it's really not even uh, a, a proceeds basket issue. They just seem to have a lot more flexibility um, in general. Exactly. They just have pretty broad baskets that allow them to do, you know, a lot of different transactions. And you know, for any of our listeners who want more detail, we did um, publish a piece that sort of delves into those different baskets and the way that Revlon can do this. Um, and, you know, Revlon isn't the only company who doesn't need to rely on a proceeds basket. Um, the Claire's transfer that we've sort of been referencing throughout this podcast was also completed without using a proceeds basket. Okay. And so, and, and I guess, you know, in general, debt documents vary in their degree of, uh, of tightness and, um, and how loose they might be or flexible they might allow uh, the company to act. But the proceeds basket that, that Peter discussed before, that could still potentially be an issue for other companies, right? Yeah, um, that, that's right. For, uh, for example, uh, in credit agreement, which we uh, recently put out a piece on, um, there's a proceeds basket that arguably allows the company to transfer all of its IP to an unrestricted subsidiary. Um, you know, Reorg uh, has also written an article kind of you know, showing how valuable that IP is to GNC's business. Um, in addition, we also wrote a piece on Mattel's new uh, ABL credit agreement, which has, it's not, a, it's not a proceeds basket per se, but it essentially acts as one, um, and that could allow the company to transfer a substantial amount of its assets to unrestricted subsidiaries. Um, over the last year or so, Rear Covenants has written a, 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 about a number of proceeds baskets in uh, the debt documents of companies, including 99 cents, Jimbery, iHeart, and Avon. Great. And, and Alicia, Peter, this is super interesting. Um, I mean, it seems like a valuable tool for 
companies to use both to raise additional liquidity and also something that could be potentially dangerous for creditors that may not look into these baskets in enough detail or may not fully understand how those baskets work. Um, and I guess given that context and, and what we've discussed today, is there any takeaway that you could give to our listeners um, you know, after this podcast? What, what do they leave? What's the one thing they should leave with? So, Stephen, as you were saying, I mean, I think the biggest takeaway here is that debt investors need to be aware that debt documents, even secured debt, debt documents, even first lien debt documents, are still most likely going to provide companies with opportunities to engage in certain transactions that could result in a diversion of their value. So it's really important to fully understand the different baskets and um, you know, to think creatively about what a company could do with the sort of terms that you give them. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. Um, the ability to use these baskets can create a, a, a very valuable source of funding for these companies. It's a tactic that we think uh, lenders and note holders should definitely be aware of especially when a company becomes distressed and may need to resort to some of these creative transactions, uh, like the ones that we've kind of talked about in order to deal with it, with its debt load. Okay, great. Uh, thank you, Peter. Thank you, Alicia, for your input. Uh, to, to our listeners, thank you so much for listening and look out for our next Reorg podcast. That's all for this week. As a reminder, you can access all Reorg Research podcasts on our media page, or if you're not a subscriber, you can access them on iTunes and SoundCloud. I'm Katherine Doherty. Join us next time on Reorg's weekly podcast.